one. That's a lot of American accents for one morning, but um, <laughs> it's great to be here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chad. I'm uh, a pastor of this congregation, and uh, I don't know about you, but I would say that um, this is one of the more challenging Bible readings that we've had. Um, by that, I mean boring. And um, if we can just bring up our first slide, this was one of the things that I was concerned about when we began this series. We've got a book called Numbers, and um, I like Jen's little introduction. You know, we know what numbers are, and these are not the kind of numbers that we can use in science fiction that will help us crack open time travel and these sorts of things. These are census numbers, you know, just counting of people and organizing them into tribes. This is your basic accounting type of numbering. And it's great that it's accurate, but there's just not a lot that is exciting about it. Unless your name is among those numbers. And uh, if we can just look at our next slide, I've shared this before um, with this congregation, but what's in front of you is front cover to a book called The White Family Records. It's riveting reading. But one of the things that's really cool about this book for me is that my name um, is in this book, and my wife's name, and my children were the last generation to get in this book. And the reason the White Family Records have been put together is back in 1620, when the pilgrims were coming over to North America for the first time, there was just over 100 of them. And once they landed, um, what is now Plymouth, Massachusetts, you know, Plymouth Rock, um, a child was born there as they docked at, at Plymouth Rock in Cape Cod. And that child was named Peregrine White because Peregrine falcons fly over large distances and they seek out new opportunities. So they named the first child born in the Mayflower Peregrine. Now, Peregrine is my great-grandfather 16 generations removed. Um, my mother's grandmother was Floretta Bell White, and at that stage the White name disappeared because she married a Springston, and my mother was a Springston who married a Hafer. But I am 16 generations a descendant from Peregrine White. And so for me, it's kind of cool, you know? I think these hundred people set out on a ship, crossed over a sea. They were all religious pilgrims. That's what they were called, the pilgrims. They were Puritan people who were fleeing religious persecution, looking for opportunity and blessing and a brand new land. And they say that there are around 30 million or more descendants um, from the original Mayflower people. From those hundred, there are now around 35 million living or dead that have descended from them, and I am one of those numbers. So this book is kind of cool to me. Um, numbers would have been really cool to those people whose names you just heard, the uh, Minadabs and the Eleazars and all of that, because they were part of a, a promise, and they were part of a blessing. But what I want us to, um, we're not going to do a lot of genealogies, don't worry, they, they keep appearing in numbers. I just wanted us to get one because I don't want to ignore the fact that for these people, this was significant. And for us, the important thing is to realize that we are included by name in this book of numbers. I mean, we may not have turned up in the Bible reading today, <laughs> but Christ assures us that we are counted, that we are numbered 
um, in his book when we put our faith in him. So hopefully this will keep us engaged to realize that the promises, the hopes, the dreams, everything that these people had in their hearts when they were setting out for a promised land um, is, is part of our story as well. And then just real quickly, if we can bring up our next slide, just to remind ourselves that um, this is about this journey through the wilderness. And so even though, as we've just heard, Numbers is this collection of uh, some of the laws that we've already learned about when we were in Exodus and Leviticus briefly, um, and then we have these census things that keep on reminding us of the people who are traveling through the wilderness, but what really will drive this series are these gripping stories. And to be honest with you, some of the best and weirdest stories um, in the Bible um, come from the book of Numbers. So there'll be some really interesting things to keep us engaged as well. But Numbers is really driven by three promises that God made to Abraham 500 years before this great journey um, set out, and, and Jen has reminded us. We saw this back in Genesis. If we can just have our next slide. If you go to Genesis 12, right back to the beginning of the Bible, 2,000 years before Christ, about 500 years before the things we're going to read about today, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So now what we're going to realize is that what's really happening here is that God is delivering on these promises. And so what we're going to do is just go through those um, one by one. So first of all, we have the promise of countless people. Um, later on, God says to Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars up in the sky. If you could count them, then you would be able to count your descendants, which is kind of ironic because we're in the book of Numbers, and at this stage, they're still counting them, but they are, they are large numbers. So just going back to Numbers 10, 35 to 36, when the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then whenever it came to rest, Moses said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. So there's a bit of irony, uh, irony intended there. The countless thousands um, in the very first chapter of Numbers, we're told that they numbered the fighting men. There was just over 600,000 guys from the age of 20 up until they were too old to fight. And if they would have counted all of the women and children as well, we would have had millions of people traveling through the wilderness. But Numbers includes this, this um, kind of mention of the countless thousands because they realized that once upon a time, God had made a promise to an infertile couple who were very old, who had no children of their own, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a nation that's bigger than anyone can even count. And now if you were standing out there, and you can imagine millions of people, if suddenly Sydney started exiting, you know, and heading out, and someone said, stand up on the hill and start counting, and you just go, can't do it. 
um, God is delivering on his promise. And they mentioned that part of this is also this formation. Um, uh, Not only is there just a horde of them, but God is organizing them into a nation. And they were moving as a nation. If we can just have our next slide, because this one's really significant. And it was mentioned that the key thing was, as these people moved through the desert, they weren't just meant to be this flood of people that sometimes you see the flood of refugees fleeing their homes or fleeing from war. But God said, no, you're not just a bunch of people in panic and running like you know, insects through the wilderness. You are a holy nation. And so at the very center was the tabernacle, which is where God's holy presence would dwell. That great cloud they kept talking about was God's glory filling the tabernacle. And then they were meant to you know, follow this cloud of God's glory. And then when it stopped, they would stop and they would organize themselves around it. And one of the things you might have noticed, and people talk about whether this was intentional or whatever, but you notice the, the shape, the pattern. Um, it forms this cross, if you look at it from overhead. And it's a great reminder to us that this is the nature of what we call the church today, the Christian church. It is God's holy people made holy through Christ, centered on Christ, centered around Christ. And in John's gospel, um, we talked about this belief briefly when we went through John, John says the word or Christ lived among us, and we said the actual word is he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tabernacle in the midst of us, and we have beheld his glory. Go back and read John 1.14 sometime. Christ tabernacled in our midst, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Father who has appeared to us in grace and truth. In other words, the original 12 disciples who represented these 12 tribes, when they saw Jesus, they said, here is God's glory living among us. And as the apostles went and proclaimed the gospel to every nation, tribe, and language, and we were gathered together, we form this people of God centered on Christ. We become part of God's holy nation, part of God's holy people. And I think this is a really cool way of seeing it. So the numbers, the countless numbers is blessing number one. If we can just go to our next slide, we're told that all nations will be blessed through you. And in our Bible reading today, we heard, now Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. When God made his original promise to Abraham, he said, this is not just for you and your descendants, but all nations will be blessed through you. And this is not a major theme in the book of Numbers, but this is a really cool mention in the, in the middle of it. Moses married into a Midianite family. Remember when he left Egypt and fled out into the wilderness and he met this Midianite guy and he married his daughter and now this guy has been traveling along with them and he says, now you guys are on your way, I'm going to go back home. And Moses pleads with him and says, God has promised good things to us. He has promised to bless us. You, you Midianite, 
you come and be part of our blessing. And so here, in just a really small way, we get this picture of God beginning to include the nations in his promises. And this will happen later on when we have books like Ruth or when you hear about Rahab, the the prostitute in the city of Jericho. God keeps including these people um, amongst, amongst his blessed people. And of course, that eventually that extends to all of us as well. We've just come through June Mission Month, and we've been reminded that the gospel or the good news about God's blessing on all people through Christ is something that is to be proclaimed to every nation, to every tribe, and to every language. And here we get just this small glimpse of it. And then that takes us to the third promise. And this is the one I left to last because I think this is really the driving promise. The, the Israelites have now not just become this desert-dwelling people. Next week we'll understand more of why they find themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years when it should have just taken them a couple of weeks to get to their destination. But God had given them a home. Back in the days of Abraham, he was living in the promised land, but he didn't own anything. He didn't own any of it. He was a resident alien, which I really appreciate because when I came to this country, for a long time it said on my passport that I was a resident alien. I had to be a resident alien for a number of years before they allowed me to become a citizen. And that was really cool when I went from resident alien, which sounds kind of weird, to actual citizen as part of of this country. Abraham had lived in the promised land as a resident alien. And then, of course, eventually all the Israelites had gone down into Egypt during the days of Joseph. And now they were returning back to this home where they were finally going to own it for themselves. They were going to be citizens of that land. And so the whole driving force of this book is the Israelites saying, we're going home. We finally get to go home. We get to go and receive what God had promised to us. Um, so back in Genesis fifteen eighteen, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. And so now uh, in Numbers ten twenty nine, Moses again says to his father-in-law, We're setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. You come with us. Go home with us, and and we want to include you in this. So there's this great promise of land. And I don't want us to forget that for us as Christians, we can maybe feel a little bit like the Israelites, that we're just wandering around the wilderness, right? God has promised all these things to us and talked about this blessing and this great hope and everything, but every day you get up, go off to work, you go off to uni, you go and do the things that you're meant to do, you know, and there's all these different things that happen and all the different trials and all the different tests and you come home and you go to bed and you get up and you do it all over again and this is the Christian life. But what Numbers wants to remind us is that's not the nature of things. Our faith has a destiny. We, we are moving in a direction. We are moving towards the promises that Christ has promised through Christ's own life and death and resurrection. He said he has earned for us an eternal home. Let me just read to you a little bit from Revelation 21, 1 to 3. 
John, in this great vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will be with them. He will be with us. That's the great hope of our faith. Not that we just get up each day and do these things and try to live a good life, and hopefully people will say nice things at our funeral one day. But God has promised good things to us, and we have a blessing, and we have a hope, and we have a home. And Christ is already there, and he's already achieved it for us, and one day he will come back, and he will deliver all of his promises to us. Our names are written in his book of life. If we have put our faith in him, you are included in all of these promises. So Numbers really is just a book about um, a faithful God leading an unfaithful group of people. And sadly, I need to warn you right now, most of what happens in the book of Numbers, there's a few highlights. It's mostly just people complaining, people rebelling, people being tested and failing in those tests. But for me, if we can just have our next slide, the, the key verse from the book of Numbers is found in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man, or God is not human, that he should lie, nor a son of man, a son of a human, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? This type of speech, they say, is a question that expects the answer no. In other words, God is not like people. You've probably been promised all sorts of things by different people in your lives, and hopefully some of those things have been fulfilled, and many of them people probably haven't delivered. But if God speaks, then he acts. If he promises, then he fulfills. God promised all of these good things to Abraham thousands of years ago, and now they are being delivered to the people of Israel. But even though we're going to see them fail over and over again, sin, rebel over and over again, God remains faithful. God's always faithful to his promise. And even though he will punish and judge people for their sin, just like a police officer or a good judge or, you know, people who are in legal professions. There have to be consequences for the wrong things we do. None of this stuff derails God's promises that he has for us. And so this is the driving force of the whole thing, that God will always keep his promises. So the big thing I want us to hear, if we could just have our final slide, is that this is our story. And it's kind of nice that this comes on the back of a book like James. You might remember that James is one of those books of the New Testament specifically written to Jewish Christians and therefore contains a lot of language um, from the Old Testament and the early books. Another book of, uh, of the New Testament is Hebrews, again, specifically written to Hebrew question, uh, to Christians. And so many of the uh, uh, so much of the emphasis of Hebrews is, is, comes from, from Numbers and Pentateuch language. That God is a God who remains faithful. 
So if we go back to James, one of the key verses, it says, and keep the wilderness wanderings in mind as we're reading this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, God could have just taken these people from out of Egypt, plonked them down in the promised land, and said, off you go. But that was never the plan. The plan was to teach his people how to trust him, to teach people about his nature, about his love, about his judgment, about his generosity. The reason that God hasn't just saved us and then plonked us down straight away in, in heaven is that now he is teaching us through our tests, through our trials, through our own failures, that God is faithful and we need to grow in our faith and learn to trust in him. I'm going to sing our song of response in a moment, but just before I do, I want us to, to realize that what we're about ready to do here in, um, through the Lord's Supper has a lot to do with what we've just been hearing about because this meal is a covenant meal. In other words, it's an agreement meal between us and God. And there are lots of reasons why we, we share communion together. But part of the reason that the Israelites did this thousands of years ago and that Christians continue to do it today is that it says to you, as you take part of that cup and as you take a piece of that bread, is that you are one of God's children. You have been numbered as part of God's family because he has made an agreement and he's delivered everything through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. It's all been achieved. It's all been done for you. God has shown himself faithful and he will deliver on these promises. He will bless you. He will make you part of a great nation. He will make you part of a new heaven and a new earth. What's my part of the covenant? What's your part? Is that we would continue to put our faith in Jesus because he alone is the way and the truth and the life. We won't get there on our own power. We won't get there through our own goodness but by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, God will deliver those promises to us.